everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric infectious disease fellow currently living in Boston. Just a brief comment on the format of the podcast. Febrile aims to tell stories of ID cases. It may not necessarily be in the typical structured HMP format, but crafted to tell the story as seen by the consultant. We'll pause along the way to hear from our guest, who I will introduce in just a moment. Two quick disclaimers before we get started. First, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Second, for those who followed or joined prior virtual Twitter case conferences at hashtag IDFellowCase, um, this case likely will sound familiar, um, but there is a lot to unpack, and I'm positive that you'll find some added value in the expanded audio version. And with that, I will introduce our guest today, Dr. Jerome Escoda. He is the co-program director of the ID Fellowship and the medicine clerkship director at Washington University in St. Louis. He is a member of the executive committee of the IDSA Medical Education Community of Practice and chairs its teaching and learning resources work group. Jerome is originally from the Philippines and has a long list of teachers that have inspired him to become the great ID educator that he is today. And more recently, he has expanded this role on social media by creating the Washington University ID Questions, or WUIDQ, on Twitter, which is the first Twitter resource that provided a platform for ID teaching and learning via board-style questions and case discussions. And lastly, he has a dutiful son, a caring brother, a trusted friend, an approachable teacher, a lifelong learner, and always a wide-eyed camper. Welcome, Jerome! (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. So glad that you're here. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy to be here. And I've been waiting for this um, since you've invited me. It's the first of its kind in infectious disease. And I applaud you for this um, for this endeavor. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, thank you. Our show prides itself in saying that we are a cultured podcast because I want to open up by just letting our guests share a little piece of culture, whatever that may be, that brings you joy. Um, wow. I love culture questions. And there's so many things that bring me joy. Um, but one thing I would say um, is food. I love to eat and I love to cook. Um, so... We've heard of many compartments in our lives, right? There's a professional, there's a personal um, eating, and the way I enjoy food is one compartment on its own, <laughs> and everything revolves around that culture. Yeah. Like, I travel because I love to explore food. I exercise a lot because I want to eat food. <laughs> and, um, you know, sometimes I attend parties because I want to eat their food. So <laughs> everything revolves around food. And um, so that's one culture for you guys. Yes. <laughs> I I like to collect cookbooks, and I feel like I travel for exactly the same reasons. It's the best way to get to know a place that you're visiting. Exactly. Awesome. All right, so we'll dive into the case. We have a new consult. Our consult question today is a patient with brain and lung lesions who presented with fatigue. Please assist with workup. Our patient today is a 70-year-old female who actually is here for readmission with fatigue, anorexia, and night sweats at home. 
So I'm going to take a step back and look at this prior admission. And so you're reviewing her chart, and she was hospitalized about five months ago after a sinkable event. Um, She was getting groceries and getting into her car, felt nauseous, and passed out. And so at the time, she had some imaging done, an MRI brain, which showed a right parietal ring-enhancing brain lesion. And then on her CT chest, she had an isolated right upper lobe cavitary nodule. Unfortunately, though, this she had a pretty extensive workup, all of which was unrevealing. So they started with a lung core biopsy, and this showed alveolated lung parenchyma with consolidated area of fibrosis showing some central necrosis. There was some adjacent sort of chronic inflammatory infiltrate with lymphocytes and histiocytes, but our infectious stains, so AFB, GMS, fight, were negative for microorganisms, and there was no obvious evidence of malignancy. And so because there wasn't a definitive diagnosis, about a week later, she actually had a right parietal craniotomy and resection of this deep brain mass. And so the lesion grossly was described as kind of firm, had a bit of a rubbery capsule, and the pathology demonstrated brain tissue that had abundant macrophages, some chronic inflammation, and reactive gliosis. There was more extensive infectious um, studies at this time, but Gram, AFB, GMS, and fight stains were negative. She had toxo and treponemal immunostains that were negative. There was HSV, CMV, VZV, viral immunostains, also negative. Um, and then her PS stain, there were a couple like PAS positive particles in the cytoplasm of the macrophages. But after pretty extensive discussion, everything was kind of determined nonspecific. It was unclear if this was infection or infarction, demyelination, whatever process was going on, it was unclear. But they didn't really find evidence of malignancy to tie it together either. And so we'll kind of zoom back to current day. So now she's back in the hospital. She's felt fatigued and she has night sweats and just isn't really eating, but doesn't have new symptoms such as fever, headache, visual changes. And so her imaging is repeated. And unfortunately, her MRI brain shows progression. So now she has multiple supra and infratentorial ring enhancing lesions that are new since the prior MRI. And this CT chest, her right upper lobe cavity now has a fluid level, but she has new additional scattered nodules on the right upper lobe, sort of near the lesion, but also on her left lower lobe. Um, And I will say her vitals are normal. Her exam is pretty unrevealing. She has a healing right scalp lesion that looks well from the prior uh, craniotomy. And then as far as past medical, she does have a history of immune thrombocytopenic purpura or ITP, had a splenectomy about 10 years ago. She was extensively on steroids before that, but has not had any recently. Um, And then she has proxismal AFib, is on amiodarone, diltiazem, and apixaban. And so before we jump into more info, that that was a good chunk of <laughs> the case. I want to see like what questions are running through your mind right now and what are you thinking about? Yeah. Um, yeah, what a great case. Um, so let me start by saying that 
it is not uncommon uh, for one to get overwhelmed when hearing about a complicated case. And when you start actually digging into the files and assembling relevant information about the consult. Um, so I think um, one of the first things that we should do when this thing happens is to try to summarize the case so that our brain is able to handle it much better. Um, when I try to summarize a case, I first look at the patient um, and ask myself, what are the important risk factors that the patient has that may predispose him or her to certain infections? Um, for this patient, her age is one. Um, and most importantly, she has a history of splenectomy uh, from ITP. And we know that Patients with splenectomy are predisposed to developing encapsulated bacterial infections and maybe some protozoal infections. In addition, this patient has an extensive history of steroid use, and that really opens a Pandora's box of differential diagnoses in terms of infection. After the patient, I also try to look at the signs and symptoms, laboratory or imaging abnormalities, and try to come up with a grouping of these symptoms um, into recognizable syndromes. And as I do that, I try to weave the tempo of the illness into the picture. Um, so this, uh, this patient has had a lot of, um, I would say, nonspecific symptoms, fatigue, night sweats, which may or may not really help me in crafting a differential diagnosis. But what really jumps out is the fact that this patient has co-occurrence of, of brain and lung lesions. Um, so this is a recognizable syndrome, at least in infectious diseases, because as you know, there are some infections that may predisposed to brain and lung lesions more than other infections. For example, nocardia. And actually, I dare the listeners to actually try Googling it. Um, brain plus lung and then infection, the number one cause that the Google will, will spill out is really nocardia. Um, so that's one infection that looms large here, consistent with um, you know, the patient's presentation and consistent with the risk factors. But we should also be mindful of other infections that could mimic, uh, mimic nocardiosis. For example, fungal infection, specifically one, the endemic fungi, which I call HBC. Uh, estoplasmosis, blastomycosis, and um, coccidioidomycosis, depending on where the patient resides, um, but also other yeast infections like cryptococcus and mold infections, including aspergillus and mucor. The presence of these multiple lesions in the lungs and in the brain that's sort of like progressive, to me suggests an embolic disease. So I'm going to look into the heart and look for evidence of infective uh, endocarditis. And we know that staph and strep are the most predominant organisms, but it could also be from other weird bugs, as we, as we call it, especially those that escape routine diagnostics. Um, the, other, um, the other things that I also think about are embolic diseases that may be outside of the heart. Um, Lemire's disease comes into mind. Um, so it's a disease caused by septic thrombophlebitis of the internal jugular vein. And even without the involvement of the heart itself, it is known to lead to a lot of embolic disease in the lungs, in the liver, and even the brain. Um, so that's something um, that could cause a co-occurrence of brain-lung lesion. But there are also other infections that may not have 
um, an embolic source, but is just predisposed to dissemination. Um, so for example, hypermucoviscous Klebsiella uh, can actually uh, do this. So those are some of the thoughts that I thought about in terms of the syndrome. So um, combining the two, you know, your summary of the patient and your summary of the syndrome equals the problem representation. So for this patient, so she's a woman in her 70s who is immunocompromised, status post-splenectomy, um, who's had extensive history of steroid use, who presents with chronic, and I would say progressive, so that's the tempo of the illness, history of brain and lung pathology. So I'll start with that. And as you can see, these are just a few words, just one phrase that sums up the case, and it allows your brain to really think of a broad differential diagnosis. Wow, wonderful start. Okay, I'll give you a little bit more social history so you can <laughs> Thank pull you. the listen a little bit. So your patient lives in the northeastern U.S. She lives with her husband and a pet cat named Perito. <laughs> I'm I'm naming all the pets. In the- <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, she is <laughs> she is retired, um, but worked as a medical assistant in the past. Uh, her only international travel previously was to Spain in her 20s. She went for a vacation very briefly. Um, she has never been incarcerated or experienced homelessness and no alcohol, tobacco, or other drug use. Any other info that you want about her? Yeah. Or does this help you move anything up and down the list? Um, it helps me a lot because um, the geography itself helps narrow down some of the differential diagnoses, in particular, you know, uh, endemic mycoses. And the reason why they're called endemic, because they are found in particular regions um, of the world or in the U.S. Um, histoplasma, um, they're veering away from the word endemic and just say, hyperendemic in certain areas and endemic everywhere uh, because, you know, it is beginning to be documented in almost every um, um, area in the U.S. So that's that 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 cannot be ruled uh, cannot be ruled out here, um, but being in the northeast probably would make coccidioidomycosis less likely in the differential diagnoses. Um, it's interesting. Um, she was a medical technologist, you said, or a medical assistant. Yeah, medical assistant, like in an outpatient office. I see. Um, you know, people in the healthcare force, because of their uh, exposure, you may probably consider uh, tuberculosis in your differential diagnoses. And um, TB, together with other non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections, you know, could lead to a brain and lung manifestation. So that's one. And then uh, the cat. Um, one of my uh, great ID teachers always say, when there is a cat, in the history, it's always to blame. <laughs> um, so s- I apologize. Yeah, cats have a pretty bad rap in the ID world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very bad rap. Um, so I apologize for the cat lovers out there. I love cats. Um, but it's something to be mindful of. And, you know, there there's a whole variety of infections that can be associated with cats. And I am one who loves mnemonics. And my mnemonic for that is, my cat loves peanut butter. Um, so the, the, the P 
so the peanut butter actually is the act is the mnemonic there. The P is a double P, so it's plague caused by your senior pestis, and then uh, pasteurella, obviously, and then the B for the butter stands for Bart, uh, Bartonella, obviously, and then um, Bordetella, bronchiseptica, and then the triple T is tularemia. Toxoplasma and then Toxocaracati. So those are my mnemonics for uh, cat infection. Um, but let me see. Um, of all the differential diagnoses in that mnemonic, um, nothing really fits the uh, the exact picture, maybe except for Bordetella endocarditis or disseminated um, Bordetella bronchiseptica, which has been documented in people that are immunocompromised. So those are the additional differentials that I would entertain given this uh, exposure history. I love a good mnemonic. I was scribbling it down as you're saying it. Um, all right. And then, so what is your list that you're going to give the primary team for additional tests and requests from the ID team? Fantastic. Um, so depending on my examination, obviously, I will look for, um, you know, evidence of embolic phenomenon. So is there a murmur? Is there um, Osler snows or Janeway lesions? And really palpate the neck and see if there's any tenderness there. Um, but, you know, honestly, even if I don't see these, you know, physical exam findings, an echocardiogram should probably be an important consideration. Um, so TTE, and if that is negative, really pursue a, a transesophageal echocardiogram because um, it is more sensitive in picking up uh, endocarditis. So that's one. Um, and I'm going to exhaust all the non-invasive tests that I need. For example, since no cardiosis is a major consideration here, it should be picked up by blood cultures. And then also working up for um, fungal infections. Um, a blood fungal culture may increase the yield and also doing the antigen tests for histoplasma, blastomyces, and cryptococcus, and may also be considering um, antibody testing for those. And then there are also other non-invasive tests. And, and again, this is center-dependent, um, depending where you train and where you work. Uh, so beta-D-glucan and aspergillus galactomannan are additional non-invasive tests. TB is a consideration because of this cavitating lesion in the right upper lobe. You know, it's probably safe uh, to isolate this patient, although I believe this patient has had an extensive workup for tuberculosis. Uh, whether um, the patient would need, you know, some additional workup, I'll probably consider that. Um, you know, send an IGRA test, um, AFB smears from the sputum. Um, and you know, I always, I always, you know, tell my trainees and students that, you know, in in cases where it's really escaping uh, routine diagnostics, one really has to get tissue. So tissue is the issue. This patient actually has had an extensive workup, including biopsy of the brain and then biopsy of the lungs. Um, those lesions, after five months, and I'm not sure what kind of therapy the patient received have really progressed. Um, so I would probably vote for another investigation um, into doing more biopsies, stain it again for fungal and bacterial stains, sending them for culture. Because in cases like this, it is not unusual to miss the diagnosis at first pass of a biopsy. So I think that's one important um, uh, 
clinical nugget <laughs> that I will share everyone, especially in the workup of fever of unknown origin. It always starts with a suspicion. If the tests are negative, but still the suspicion looms large, you know, pursue more testing and repeat some of these tests, especially if these tests were done at outside centers. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'll give you some of the initial labs as her CBC. She had a very mild leukocytosis. Her white blood cell count was about 12,000. Her CBC and differential were otherwise normal. Her chemistry, liver function test, troponin are normal. Um, we do have your HIV test that's back and is negative. Um, and then we've sent off the other couple things that we have chatted about. So blood cultures, um, uh, fungal markers, and several of the antibody antigen testing. And so those are all cooking in the lab. Um, and so sort of at the same time, she does go for a CT of her abdomen pelvis, which does not show anything acute or abnormal. And then she does get a surface echo. And so on there, the comment is that there is no obvious source of embolism. She does have uh, grade three diastolic dysfunction and then moderate tricuspid regurgitation, mild mitral regurgitation. And so the kind of at the same time, she's in isolation with the goal to try and get some sputum samples for um, bacterial, fungal, and AFB cultures. And she's unable to do that even with induction. So there's plan for bronchoscopy, which we in ID know that that a lot of times is sort of the final step if we are unable to. Um, and so at this point, she's been admitted a couple days. She goes for bronchoscopy BAL sampling, which goes fine, and she's doing well afterwards. But about 24, 48 hours later, she acutely develops right eye pain and vision loss. And so ophthalmology is urgently called. And due to the concern for endogenous endophthalmitis, she has a vitreous tap. They inject vancomycin, ceftazidime, and amphotericin. And at this point, we do have an additional result. Her beta-D-glucan results as over 500. And so I thought we could pit stop here and talk a little bit about sort of therapeutics at this point and um, any other thoughts on sort of tying this together so far. Yeah. Um, where do I begin? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the pivot points, I think, in this case is um, the the shocking development of new symptoms while in the hospital, which is the right eye pain and blurring of vision, uh, sort of like acutely. And, you know, when that happens in the hospital, you know, there's so many causes that you can entertain. But regardless of differential diagnoses, it's sometimes hard. So you always need an ophthalmologist to evaluate what kind of disease pathology in the eye this is. It was very helpful because they really said that it was endophthalmitis. And as you know, um, it's it's either going to be endogenous or exogenous, but why will the patient develop exogenous um, endophthalmitis? So it has to be endogenous. And in people with endogenous endophthalmitis, there could just really be one elephant in the room, and which is endocarditis. And that really, this 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 consideration maps in well um, with the diffuse lung and brain lesions that this patient has. Um, so the consideration of an embolic source. Um, 
should should remain really high. So um, so that would behoove me to really push for a TEE. And in fact, even if the TEE is negative, if the suspicion is still high, if you're not already managing the patient as a case of endocarditis, um, pursuing another TEE for the second time sometimes you know can pick um, the diagnosis that you're suspecting. Um, so that is one. Um, and the other thing I want to comment is um, we are lucky that the beta D-glucan is actually not just positive, but actually very high. Um, so beta D-glucan is interesting because it cannot be interpreted on its own. Um, the beta D-glucan, as you know, can be falsely elevated uh, for example, if this beta D-glucan is just, you know, on the upper limit of normal or just a tiny bit above normal, you always consider the possibility of false positive tests and, you know, bacteremias, which is a consideration in this case, or um, use of certain antibiotics, um, hemodialysis or IVIG are some of the things that commonly um, falsely elevate beta D-glucan. But in this situation, the beta D-glucan is super, super high beyond the limit of detection. So you know that there is something there. Um, beta D-glucan is a component of a lot of um, a fungus. Um, and if it's positive, it usually indicates invasive fungal infection, especially in cases of candida, um, aspergillus, and pneumocystis. Um, it is, however, not usually detected um, in mucor, um, in blasto, and in crypto. So in a way, you can rule out some of these infections, but ultimately, you have to interpret this test in light of the clinical presentation. Um, so it's a test that's very helpful for aspergillus, PCP, and candida, as I've said, but I really don't think that this case represents, you know, pneumocystis simply because I have not seen pneumocystis causing cavitary lesions with necrosis and um, with uh, concomitant ring-enhancing lesions in the brain. Could it be candida? Possibly. Um, could it be aspergillus? Most definitely. Um, so tying it together, you know, there is um, a signal for an invasive fungal infection and also endocarditis in this patient. And all of these um, really map well to the time course of the illness. The only question is, why didn't we pick it up five months ago? We'll see how the case unravels. But, you know, this is an important turning point. Um, the patient is progressing in front of your eyes. So um, I would initiate antifungal therapy and of all the available antifungals, amphotericin is probably you know, uh, the broadest antifungal that you can initiate. But mind you, there are also uh, uh, fungal infections that may be resistant to amphotericin. Um, so it's important for you to um, try to recover um, the, the, the fungus as much as you can and look for response. Um, and so we did just that. The other part of it was she was on amiodarone, which has some interactions with azole. So <clears throat> it was another sort of push to use amphotericin. And so she's put on amphotericin B, five mg per kg IV daily. And like you were getting to is she does now have a new systolic murmur on exam. And so mm -hmm. initially before going to TEE, she actually has a repeat um, 
transthoracic echo that shows now a large 1.5 centimeter partially mobile echo density on the mitral valve. And there actually is significant valve damage to the point where there is some regurgitant flow through a posterior leaflet. Um, she also has some moderate to severe mitral regurgitation and moderate tricuspid regurgitation as well. So she is pretty quickly taken to the OR and has a tissue mitral valve replacement and a repair of her tricuspid valve. And so our pathology from this excised valve tissue is what gets us the final diagnosis. Um, and so I will jump right to that. Her pathology did show septated branching hyphae on path and the tissue culture from the vitral vegetation ultimately grew aspergillus fumigatus. In addition to that, her vitreous fluid, um, the bacterial and fungal cultures were negative, but we did send a universal broad range PCR. And a little bit later in her course, you find out that that also was positive for aspergillus fumigatus. So she does well postoperatively, is transitioned to voriconazole um, as drug of choice for aspergillus. And so I, I figure we could pause here and just talk a little bit about fungal endocarditis, and we can talk a little bit about aspergillus as well, but this is a pretty unusual case. And I didn't know if there's sort of different pearls or nuggets that you keep in your head when thinking about fungal endocarditis. For me, I think something that's really helpful to teach people is how blood cultures, depending on the pathogen outside of Canada, are often going to be negative. And so that's something that I felt like was really um, good to talk to the teams about. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's really a teaching moment. Whenever I hear fungal endocarditis, I cringe because I always know um, the increased mortality and morbidity associated with it. And, you know, reflecting on this case, it's probably really because this case really highlights the challenge of diagnosing invasive fungal infection um, because it's, uh, as we've pointed out before, it's not uncommon for people to undergo so many tests and then you get frustrated because none of these tests actually reveal the diagnoses. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes these diagnoses can, can, be, um, um, can be clinched, you know, in fact, on autopsy, which is which is you know the the one thing that we want to prevent, um, and also it's also interesting. Even the diagnosis of endocarditis really escaped us from the get go, um, so it really demonstrates the challenge of um, some of the diagnostics and the limitations of them when we order them, and it highlights the importance of the clinician's suspicion and. Whenever I hear fungal endocarditis too, I always wonder uh, about source control because it's so hard to eradicate. So, for example, this patient already has evidence of endophthalmitis. I'm not really sure how the patient is or going to respond to treatment. So, enucleation, um, you know, is always um, in the back of my head and has to be a conversation with the patient and with the ophthalmologist too. Yeah. Um, and I think the other hard question for this case uh, with disseminating infection is how long to treat. Obviously not something that, that is right. <laughs> you can immediately decide there in the <laughs> hospital. But I mean, I think at this point we just know it's going to be a long time and you, uh -huh. it kind of depends on the patient. Because <laughs> um, really <laughs> she has evidence of like pulmonary disease. Um, she has this new valve, but she had endocarditis, she had endophthalmitis. Um so, yeah, I think uh, 
there certainly are guidelines for aspergillosis, but at the end of the day, a lot of times I feel like it's a uh, uh, looking at the big picture and sort of patient specific. Yeah, absolutely. And also uh, monitoring, you know, imaging findings, are they evolving? Do you have new spots and monitoring um, levels depending on, you know, uh, what azole you decide on, um, on, on using? Yeah. Um, we actually have another visit. <laughs> okay. Because your patient goes to rehab. She's on voriconazole monotherapy. She's taking it, but comes in a couple weeks later again with right eye vision loss. You know, her baseline around the time when she left was really sort of blurry shapes. But at this point, it's kind of grayed out. She has no fevers, no cough, chest pain, uh, GI symptoms. And so I will sort of fast forward and say that she was found to have recurrent endophthalmitis and ultimately required a bilateral vitrectomy. Um, and so because of this uh, new disease, she has repeat imaging. And unfortunately, her MRI brain did show some worsening disease. So the areas that we talked about earlier, um, particularly the supratentorial sort of ring enhancing lesion, some of those areas are smaller and have less sort of surrounding edema, but she has new both left and right occipital enhancing lesions. Otherwise, she had been doing okay. Her beta deglucan had been falling, but was still in the 200s. Mm -hmm. Her galactomannan throughout all of this had remained negative, and her labs are otherwise stable. And her susceptibilities for the aspergillus are sent out, but you don't quite have them back yet. It's fun to talk about like brain and lung lesions, but this is another point of sort of differential diagnosis that we see a lot in ID consults, trying to figure out what is going on. So I thought I would see sort of how you think through a patient who sort of has come in and seems to have ongoing disease, but is on therapy, how you think about that. Yeah. So at this point, Sarah, um, in the course, we have all the cultures finalized as Aspergillus fumigatus, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, the first thing I want to ask is how sure are we that this is you know, the um, the infection that we think it is. Um, so naming the fungus is really important because it really gives us an idea of what to treat it with. Um, voriconazole is the drug of choice um, for aspergillus. And um, I would have expected that this patient um, res would respond to the voriconazole. Even with um, CNS involvement, uh, voriconazole has good penetration because that's another thing that you should consider. So first ask yourself, is this the right drug? And the answer is yes. Uh, number two, um, does it have the pharmacokinetic profile to treat that infection? And the answer is yes, because voriconazole uh, penetrates the eye and also penetrates the CNS um, uh, really good. And then the third is there are some azoles that have absorption challenges, and you would wonder what, what the level of voriconazole is in the blood. It's one of the azoles that we do therapeutic uh, monitoring. And the usual caveat is we have to maintain, you know, a level above one, um, but less than, you know, five or something. And that's, and that's the therapeutic threshold. Um, above that, we expect toxicity, which could be some of these things because one of the toxicity for voriconazole is visual disturbances. Or if it's low, 
this could, um, you know, maybe an explanation for the progression that we have. And then the other thing is, you know, immunocompromised patients don't usually respect Occam's razor. They usually have what we call Hickam's dictum. So they can have more than one opportunistic infection. Um, so I tend to go back in the case, did I miss anything and do a, um, a dissection of what I reflect on the case, is there a concomitant infection that you know I didn't appreciate? Um, for example, um, so those are the uh, some of the things that will that will uh, be entertained. Um, and I didn't mention source control. That's that's the most important. But it sounds like this patient had surgery um, of the eye and surgery of the of the of the heart, which are our source control. So I might investigate for other areas that may have been seeded and needs uh, further debridement or surgery. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's a little bit different um, probably from ID doc to ID doc, but I didn't know sort of what is your threshold for thinking about combination therapy? Mm, um, great. Uh, particularly for aspergillus. I think it's a question for many, <laughs> uh, many infections. Yes. But yes. Yeah. So, um, that's a great question. I tend to not to jump into combination therapy um, immediately. Um, so I, I tend to go through the exercise of why is this patient failing on the antifungal medication? Um, is the dosage correct? Do I need to increase it? Is the medication correct? Are there other associated infections? And then if my answer to these questions is that, yes, it is only aspergillus, it's the drug of choice, the dose is correct, then I, 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 I do salvage therapy uh, with combination therapy. And it also depends on how the patient presents. And choosing a combination therapy, you know, I think in this case, it's going to be challenging because the one combination therapy that has really been proven to be effective in this scenario is um, the combination of an uh, an azole and um, an echinocandin. Um, so you would wonder if really echinocandin would be a good salvage therapy for this, since it's a large molecule and doesn't really penetrate much to the uh, to the brain. Um, so that's one strategy. The other strategy is, you know, possibly choosing another kind of azole in combination with a kinocandin. So you can conceivably think of using you know, isovuconazole uh, or posaconazole. So those are the uh, considerations that I will have at this point. Um, and I would say the, the, the beauty of being, you know, an ID physician is that we have a great community of experts in, 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 in different fields. Um, so I also may consider consulting people who have really uh, devoted their life and research work um, in the treatment of invasive fungal infection, knowing my limitations and see what they actually recommend. And it's something um, that should be considered as a, a normal thing to do, to ask help. Um, you know, for the sake of the patient. Yeah, I love running cases by different different people. Absolutely, absolutely. It's always good to get different perspectives. Yes. Um, yeah, and so I think we were kind of thinking a lot along the same lines. Um, her voriconazole level was a little low. I think it was in the high one. So we did bump up the dose, but it was kind of unclear if that could really explain what was going on. So we did sort of 
repeat a good bit of the workup just to see if we were missing a different source from a source control perspective. Um, so her pulmonary disease was improving. And at this point, there really was a resolution of several of the areas. Her abdomen pelvis does not show any evidence of disease. And we actually got to the point where she had a repeat a soft, transesophageal echo um, that showed that the bioprosthesis and the tricuspid annulopathy were stable and there were no vegetations. And so I think a lot of this was sort of talking to the patient and um, vision was getting a little bit better. And she had kind of decided that I think it makes more sense for me to just continue with treatment. I don't really want to do anything more invasive than a TEE. And so she actually was able to go home and is planning on lifelong voriconazole and uh, is doing well. So, you know, I think what was interesting too is that you know, she had extensive steroid exposure in the past and had a splenectomy, but it's un- it's unusual that she had such disseminated disease, I think, as a host. Because she didn't have sort of the classic risk factors for aspergillosis, mm-hmm. which I think to me are sort of severe, prolonged neutropenia, which she didn't have at the time. Steroid exposure, but usually they're – I feel like the timeline for that would have been much closer than her she had – And then certainly if they have other underlying immunosuppression, transplant patients or um, patients with HIV or CGD. But I think that that was a little puzzling, too. So it's a great case because there's so many different things to learn from, but also a little um, a little hard to know kind of how why this happened. I'm not 100 percent sure. And I also wonder how recent um, the 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 steroid use has been. Um, And I wonder how long the immunosuppression would last, even if the steroids were discontinued. So so really a perplexing case in terms of why this patient developed this this, um, very rare manifestation of aspergillosis. Yeah. Um, Well, I am so grateful that you were here to walk us through the case. Any sort of highlights for you or things that for the listeners you you really want to emphasize that we talked about? Yeah, so I will start with um, one, just be mentally ready when you receive consults and just um, just make sure that you gather relevant data. You will be overwhelmed, especially if you're dealing with an immunocompromised patient. You know, just take it all in, just relax, and then, you know, try to summarize the case as much as you can. Um, try to process the data, group these symptoms together. So that's one in the, the process of clinical reasoning. And then the other um, uh, uh, things that resonate to me in this case is um, the ability to suspect diseases based on the, the grouping of these symptoms. Um, so if you recognize br- brain lung lesion, I think that's important. Um, considering the risk factors, why the patient is immunocompromised is another. And also being persistent, I think, uh, depending on the clues um, that 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 the case has, being persistent with your suspicion that this could be fungus or this this could be endocarditis. Um, so you know, doing a cognitive autopsy, meaning I I reflect on some of the successes that I had for this uh, case is one the 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 the. the 
the the suspicion that this could be endocarditis. And the turning point of that is the sudden development endothelitis, despite a normal TTE and despite um, negative workup, really um, pinpoints endocarditis. And then I also reflect on the beta D glucan. If your if your if your um, institution doesn't have that, um, I don't know how else we will be able to start empiric antifungal treatment for this patient. Um, so there are centers that don't do beta D glucan, and it just so happened that this beta D glucan is so high, and that sort of like provides another pivot point in terms of therapy for this patient. Um, yeah, so those are the things that resonated to me um, as I uh, reflect on this case. Yeah, we have beta-D-glucan where I am. We talk about it a lot. And I, I think making sure, like any other test, knowing sort of what are the limitations and what you're looking for. And in this case, it provided a lot of valuable information. But sometimes it also gets done and it's hard to piece out when it may not be sent on the right patient. And so I'll put in our consult notes on the website sort of a summary of the couple learning points that we talked about for beta-D-glucan, which organisms you would expect it to be positive, which ones you would expect it to be negative, and some of those notes on sort of false positives. Absolutely. And actually, our institution uh, doesn't have beta-D-glucan uh, testing. Um, so it's yeah. uh, it, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. I had so much fun. I took you through a bunch of twists and turns, but um, I am very grateful that you were here to join us. Yeah, it's uh, such a great case, Sarah. And call me anytime if you want to discuss, you know, future cases. I'm always happy <laughs> to talk about, you know, these things. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Febrile. Please check out, follow, and thank our guest Jerome Skoda on Twitter at MDDreamChaser and at WUIDQ. You can also look on the website febralpodcast.com for the post-episode consult notes. And since our little piece of culture today was food, I have some recipes from Jerome and I that you can try out at home. Our consult notes will also have summaries of the pearls and mnemonics from today's show, infographics such as a summary about beta-D-glucan, and links to references. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Please connect and follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Let me know what you think, who and what I should feature on future shows, or just send me your best ID jokes. I am also always on the lookout for new fellows or trainees who want to join and help create episodes as well. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.